When I whet my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance upon mine enemies and I will repay those who hate me. O Lord, raise me to thy right hand and count me among thy saints. Welcome back to episode 179 of the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. Everything you hear in this podcast, this episode, uh, all of my episodes, my whole platform is Fair Use Creative Commons license. I don't make any money on my content, so I just put it out for the public benefit to, I guess, foster an educational environment, you know, in life. So just so happens I delve a little deeper than most people. So in this episode, there's two clips that I'm going to play. Well, one is actually a documentary. And the documentary goes by the name of Stolen History. I believe it came out last year. Uh, the guy that produced it is German. All the details is on the website. The links are going to be on the website for this episode, 179. So what uh, Stolen History about, it's a three-part. The first part, part one, which is not on here. This is, again, part three, which is two hours and three minutes, I think. But part one is 10 minutes, I believe, or 15 minutes. And then part two is an hour. And all I, I recommend you go to YouTube and type in Stolen History. And uh, you'll see like a logo with SH for Stolen History. Click it. And you have to search for it. He has a lot of content. A lot of it is in German. But this, for some reason, people in that part of the world, they make really good documentaries. Like really understandable, you know? So, yeah. So stolen history and what that the premise of that I got into this like six months ago five months ago and the concept of Tartaria Tartaria, which right now I guess is Siberia borderline Mongols and what it is is there's buildings and architecture all over the world and they they get into it if you I really recommend you go to YouTube and watch this L listen to my commentary because after I finish speaking you're gonna get the audio of of uh. A talk about stupid people and the whole logic behind it and how the mechanics of stupidity works and why like stupid people are more dangerous it's an interesting premise man it's worth listening to and then the next one is stolen history again tartaria stolen history and what they're alleging is that um around the mid 1800s to the early 1800s there was a cataclysm that struck the planet and it destroyed or took out the ruling powers of of, of that land but that land seemed to have been, and I guess you could call it Atlantis or whatever, was a beneficial creation because it had beautiful architecture all over the world. And ar architecture, what I mean by that is when you look at it, you, 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 first of all, you feel the architecture in your soul. And second of all, it elevates you to a level that nothing else really could in that way. It's like architecture is just very unique in that way because, you know, you can see a piece of art and it's interesting and you enjoy it and you... Enjoy the shading and the lighting and the concept and the angles and, <clears throat> you know, the impressionism of the painting. But for whatever reason, architecture strikes you in a way that is just timeless. It's just something that you feel, I guess, when the first person built that building up, you get that same feeling and you feel a connection to all of mankind. And that's partly what this documentary gets into, how the ruling class wants to separate all of us because... The minute you feel connected to humanity and to people and to things that are positive, 
that brings us together. But again, it, it go, gets so deep that um, it's all it's all laid out very very well in this documentary. So, I, like I said, I recommend go right to YouTube and check that out. Now, the other one again is about stupid people, and there's a, again the, all the details are in the episode how they can be very they can be very dangerous, and the mechanics of stupidity where like to a very large degree it's measured by who hurt is being inflicted to so if you're inflicting hurt on someone else or on yourself or do you get benefit from inflicting that at least as a reward and it gets kind of deep psychological but not bullshit psychological real real shit you know so tom green type shit or or what is that the the author of um what is that book author robert green the uh 48 laws of power that that type of uh level of perception and understanding and decoding which is taking place so you know it's 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 something that and again i apologize for not putting an episode out for probably close to two months it's, i've been wrapped up i like i said i pr- pretty just about another month or a few weeks i'll be finished refurbishing my house bumper to bumper just everything in the house and i got it looking nice and uh, my wife is happy and i'm happy and it looks good and, 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 but I've been really, really going at it, man, and kind of working on, so I guess to some degree you could call it like my own business that I'm trying to get going off the ground too, which is an online business with uh, writing code and uh, applicant tracking system, you know, like that, for staffing. So if you guys know somebody that's interested or looking for something like that, um, it runs on the cloud, everything is written in Microsoft Access. Give me a buzz or, or shoot me an email or a DM or whatever on my Instagram and, you know, I can get that lined up right away. I got a website, which is, uh, you know, I, I can make available to you. So anyway, I've been kind of busy with a few different things, trying to trying to make everything go together because, you know, time is becoming more precious and what's coming our way is very challenging. I don't want to get negative, but don't, you know, stock up cans of food from the dollar store and Walmart, sardines and rice and pasta beans and stuff to for survival and even water <clears throat> so again don't want to go dark but you get enough of that from a lot of people on youtube i don't want to do that i want to shed some positive light and illuminate the mind and the thinking that we we uh need to be able to align with at a time like this you know because the f- that fear takes you off your stride throws you off and then a lot of people get tossed into that fear paradigm and they're just useless because they they they, they can only dwell on the fear, you know, so, and we all know that the only other thing that can, can vanquish fear is love, right, so that's like the type of thing that we need to integrate right now, and, and take the steps for the people that we love, and go in the direction that we need to go to, to get everything go together, and stay positive, you know, because we can make it work, I believe that this plan is setting forth with Klaus Schwab, and that whole thing is not going to work because they're already, like, it looks like they're trying to squeeze their way out of it because people are really getting fed up right now with all of this. And that's one of the main reasons I put my voice out here so I can at least do my part, right? So, let's see what else I have cooking, what else I have going on. Uh, Yeah, it's an interesting time that we're in with everything that's going on. You know they're playing with your mind right now. And that's partially why I put the stupid people segment on here because... He breaks it down to its nuts and bolts, and it, what it boils down to is that people make choices that are based on either benefiting them or not benefiting them, or laziness, basically, because a lot of people don't even want to put forth the effort just to to, to uh, 
to think and to process information. It's much easier for them to follow instructions, and that's kind of gets us to where we're going today. Again, don't want to be negative. I want to stay positive with this stuff. Uh, yeah, th- yeah. So back to that documentary again, um, Stolen History. There's a lot of levels. It's like an onion, and you peel each layer of knowledge from this documentary. And it's very, very well done. My shouts out to uh, the gentleman that, that the German guy that put that uh, podcast or that uh, documentary out, the uh, Stolen History. Um, it's and then it seems like they have this special thing they want to like wipe out Germany for some reason. I don't know why. And you look at a city like Dusseldorf. Dresden, Munich, I mean, have you ever taken a look at pictures of Dresden after the five bombings and the stories? I don't even want to get, it's gross, man, it's, it's really, really bad stuff, but you know what, you have to look into it because this happened basically to us, you know, like this happened to other human beings, man, so we can't hide away from the catastrophes that, you know, have taken place in history also, whoever it may be, you know, you, you want to look at it and make sure that it, try to, try to make sure it doesn't happen again, so... Yeah, and um, I can't remember the other, uh, well, really half of Germany was wiped out with these incendiary bombs. And, like, there's no reason to project that type of hate on people, man. And it, whether they're German or whatever, because right now to be German is to be count, painted as, you know, the enemy and a Nazi and all stuff. Like, nothing is further from the truth that's such a long time ago. And all of the issues that we have coming up now are all to in- integrate it into us so it could separate us so we could fight with one another. And people don't understand that. So you lose your mind. I've spent a lifetime trying to talk to people and explain to people the knowledge and the truth that the game that they're playing on is. But most people really don't understand. It's changing and it's getting better now. Hopefully it's enough time that 100th Monkey um, Morphic Resonance kicks in. Rupert Sheldrick type shit. And we got our shit together and we're able to make a difference and improve our life for our children coming up, you know? I have a child out there that I want a better world for him too, you know? So, this, what they want to do is they want to knock us off our game and all of these things. And, and the only thing that they can get from us are the things that we give to them because our essence is, is us. It has nothing to do with our possessions, you know? But I, I go through that again. I don't want to be repetitive on my podcast, but... I, this is episode 179, so I have 170 podcasts that I put out there. It seems like the one with Terrence McKenna, 177, I think it was, really blew up. It did pretty good, man, and it, it is a great podcast. That's a good talk by Terrence there, where God and man, or God thinks and man, no, or God knows and man thinks. Really, really good stuff. So I've been babbling on here for about uh, 10 minutes. Uh, I'm going to get more consistent with my podcast and try to at least put something out once a month or whatever it is. Again, I'm going to be totally honest, though. It doesn't matter if I put a lot of content out, if I push it on Instagram or whatever. My count always pretty much stays around the same, so it's kind of discouraging, you know. And then I was getting feedback, and I think I'm like mega, mega shadow banned because of the information that I'm putting out there. It's not run-of-the-mill shit. You know, I integrate all, all these different disciplines, so, and that's something they don't like. But anyway, let me put this uh, Stupid People on, uh, which is, a, I think it's a 15-minute breakdown by a doc, Italian doctor. And then the other one is Stolen History Part 3, which is a two-hour uh, documentary, two hours and three minutes, I think, that gets into multi-level, I guess you could call it conspiracy, but it would be more forbidden knowledge type stuff. So I wish you do enjoy that. So just to get the breakdown, the website is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com is the uh, email. The website is uh, 
uh, alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. I got some really great uh, videos on my IGTV, right? So it'd be great to hear from you guys. Let me know what you think of the podcast, the shows, and uh, really want to thank you for listening. In Jesus' name, namaste. You're listening to The Voluntary Life, where you can hear ideas for finding freedom in an unfree world. Visit thevoluntarylife.com to connect with the show and hear all past episodes. Here's your host, Jake. Hi, it's Jake here. Welcome to The Voluntary Life. This week, I want to share with you a very interesting idea that comes from an article called The Five Laws of Stupidity. This is a theory of stupidity, and it's a theory about how stupidity and stupid people are the most dangerous people on the planet, and also about how easy it is to mistake stupidity for other things, and how much everyone underestimates the danger and impact that stupid people have on everyone else. This is an article that was written by an Italian economic historian, a guy called Carlo M. Cipolla. And he wrote this article in the 1970s, and he died in the late 90s. And there's very little information about this guy online, apart from the fact that he wrote this article. But I found it a very thought-provoking article. It's one of those articles that is written in a slightly humorous way. So the kind of way where the author could potentially claim that this was just them joking, but actually you can tell that he's making a serious point in the article as well. And I'll put a link in the show notes to the article so you can read it yourself. But I want to share with you the ideas in this article. So in the article, Carlos Apollo puts forward this theory of stupidity. And he puts it forward as five laws. So I'll explain each of the laws and then I'll finish by giving some of my own thoughts on the ideas. The first law of stupidity is that everyone underestimates the number of stupid people. And the idea here is that no matter how many idiots you think you are surrounded by, you are lowballing the estimate. And his argument is the reason that you underestimate how many stupid people there are around you is because you're probably assuming that people are intelligent based on superficial and irrelevant criteria, like their job, their education level, their class, their race, whether or not they're eloquent, and other biases that you may have about assuming that if somebody is a certain way, that means they're not stupid. And he's arguing in this article that you're wrong. Those things are all irrelevant. So that brings us on to law number two of stupidity. And that is that the probability that a person is stupid is independent of any other characteristic. So the idea here is that every characteristic that you can imagine, whether it's gender, race, nationality, education level, income, any category you can imagine is uncorrelated to whether or not a person is stupid. And Cipolla even says in this article, there are stupid Nobel Prize winners. So you can't predict whether a person is stupid or not by looking at any of these other characteristics that they might have. His argument is that there are stupid people in every walk of life, in every ethnic group, gender, class, profession, income level, anything you can imagine. And he goes on to argue that there's the same proportion of stupid people in any of these categories because it's uncorrelated to any of these categories. He makes the argument that he can't tell exactly how high that proportion is because everyone underestimates it all the time. But the main point is you can't use these other criteria to determine whether or not someone is stupid. 
And that brings us on to law number three. And this is his idea that a stupid person causes losses to others without gains to themselves. So he's defining stupid behavior as a social thing. And he's saying it's about whether or not you cause losses to other people without benefiting yourself. So it's a social theory of stupidity. And it means that you can still be stupid if you are very good at, for example, mathematical calculations or pattern matching or lots of other things. You could be very good at all of these things, but you're still stupid if your behavior towards others involves losses to other people without you actually gaining. So in order to explain this idea, Cipolla creates this two by two matrix. So you have two variables and two different possible states of each variable, which gives you four possible outcomes. So just to explain these variables. So one variable is, are you causing benefits to other people or are you causing losses to other people? So that's the first variable is your impact on others. Do you benefit them or do you cause them losses? And the second variable is for yourself. Are you benefiting yourself or are you causing losses to yourself? And if you combine those two, we get four different outcomes. So talking them through, first of all, you have people who benefit other people and themselves. And this is the win-win outcome where your actions in the world not only benefit you, but they also benefit other people. And you are a net positive wealth generator in the world. And Cipolla calls these intelligent people. So it's a theory of intelligence based on your behavior, your social behavior. Are you engaging in win-win interactions? So that's the first one. What about the people who cause losses to other people, but benefits to themselves? Well, Cipolla calls these bandits, and these are essentially criminals and thieves. If you imagine when somebody steals, what they're doing is they're causing a loss to you and a gain to themselves. So that's the second type. And then if you imagine there's a third type, which is people who cause benefits to others and losses to themselves. And Cipolla calls these helpless people. And there are other words that I've seen used. He sometimes calls them naive people. The idea here is that this is people who get taken for a ride. They benefit other people, but at a loss to themselves. And then the fourth group is what he defines as stupid people. And these are people who cause losses to others without benefiting themselves. And his idea is that a lot of the time, they're just messing things up for other people without any particular benefit to themselves. But they're also really stupid people who not only cause losses to others, but actually harm themselves actively. So stupid people are either just messing things up for everyone else without any clear gain or even messing things up for everyone else and actually harming themselves as well in the process. And that's his theory of stupidity. That's what stupid behavior is. And of course, since this is four different outcomes from two variables, you can draw one of these four by four matrices that entrepreneurs love. And someone's done this. I've, I've put it in the show notes. So you can see if you have on the X axis loss or benefit to yourself and on the Y axis loss or benefits to others, then in the top right hand corner, you have the intelligent people who benefit themselves and others. Then in the bottom right hand corner, you have the bandits who benefit themselves but cause losses to others. And then in the top left, you have the helpless or naive people, or sometimes called hapless people, who benefit others but not themselves. 
And then in the bottom left quadrant, you have the stupid people who harm others and harm themselves. I'll put that graphic in the show notes so you can see it. An interesting part of his law number three about defining stupid people is that he also assumes that stupid people are consistent in being stupid. In other words, they go through life constantly causing losses to other people without clear gain to themselves. So it's an interesting idea that he's putting forward that this is not just one-off behavior. There are people who are basically messing the world up through their stupidity and they're consistent about it. So law number four of stupidity, according to Cipolla, is the idea that non-stupid people underestimate the danger of the stupid. And his argument is that non-stupid people constantly forget that at all times and all places and under any circumstances to deal with and or associate with stupid people always turns out to be a costly mistake. And his argument here is that everyone underestimates just how dangerous stupid people are. Intelligent people underestimate it, but so do bandits and so do helpless people. And that brings us on to law number five. And this is the most interesting, I think. Stupid people are the most dangerous people on the planet. And as part of that law, a corollary of that is that stupid people are more dangerous than bandits. And the argument is that if you have someone who is a criminal, a bandit, who wants to gain for themselves by robbing you or by causing losses to you, that person is predictable because they are following incentives. And they may be unethical incentives. They may be doing something that is fundamentally wrong, but at least you can work out what they're likely to do because they have goals and they follow incentives. So bandits you can defend against because you can work out what a bandit might try and do to rip you off. The really dangerous thing about stupid people is that they mess things up for everyone else without clear gain to themselves. And that means they're not following incentives. They're just causing problems. So they're fundamentally unpredictable. And that makes them incredibly dangerous. Even more dangerous than the people who you would identify as the real villains in the world, stupid people are more dangerous than villains. So that's a summary of the article. As I said, I'll put a link in the show notes if you want to read the original. And I'll put a link to that graphic showing the 4 by 4 matrix of stupid people versus non-stupid people. It's a very interesting article, and I found it very thought-provoking. I like the idea of defining stupidity in terms of social behavior, because I have met very highly educated people who are very eloquent and articulate, who are also stupid in the way that this article describes. And I think it's really important to bear in mind that if you walk into a room full of highly articulate, educated people, there are going to be destructively stupid people in that group. And you shouldn't assume that just because people are highly educated or articulate, that they're not stupid. And by the same token, if you walk into a room of people who are ignorant, who are uneducated, you shouldn't assume that they're destructively stupid in the way that Cipolla defines in this article. Because the two are uncorrelated. You can have ignorant people who are not stupid. And you can have highly educated people who are stupid. The idea that stuck with me most in this article that I've really been mulling over is this idea that stupid people are the most dangerous people in the world. 
because of their unpredictability. Cipolla argues in this article that we can do nothing about the stupid. And he, he makes the basic argument that you can't teach stupid people. You can teach ignorant people and they can learn. But his argument is that there are people who cause havoc for everyone else, regardless of learning the facts. And his basic idea is that with stupid people, they just throw a spanner in the works for everyone else. And you just basically have to avoid them. And in the end of the article, he makes some comments about what this means for society. This is where the fact that he was a historian came in. He starts talking about how much impact do stupid people have on the rise and fall of civilizations. And basically his argument is the stupid people are always there. They're not what determines things collapsing. What determines whether or not societies are able to flourish is how the non-stupid people behave. And basically what proportion of the non-stupid people are behaving intelligently involved in win-win interactions with each other and what proportion of them become bandits and start doing win-lose interactions with other people. And he makes the point that once the non-stupid people stop kind of containing the impact of stupid people, everything goes to hell. So essentially for society to thrive, his argument is you've got to keep the non-stupid people acting ethically, acting in an intelligent way, which is win-win. His argument is that although you have villains or bandits, as he calls them, people who are out to benefit themselves by robbing others, those people can cause enormous damage because they can lead stupid people in bad ways. Also, they can just unleash the force of stupidity, which can wreck things for everyone else. I don't think this idea is entirely foolproof. I'm still mulling it over myself, and I, I do see some problems with this idea. I mean, you can get down to nitpicking about, well, how do you define whether a stupid person really isn't benefiting themselves? Because, I mean, you could say, for example, that a suicide bomber is doing something completely stupid because it harms other people and it also harms themselves. But then from that suicide bomber's own perspective, they obviously believe that they benefit from killing themselves. So they could have their own subjective gains in mind. And I do see some other problems with the arguments. And as I said, I get the sense that he was partly joking around by writing this article, but that he was definitely making a serious point as well. And it's one that I'm mulling over. I found it a very thought-provoking read. And I think the idea of thinking about the difference between bandits and stupid people, between people who are truly evil and out to cause harm to others in order for their own gain, thinking about the difference between them and people who just wreck things for everyone else without clear gain to themselves. That is a fascinating thing to consider and to consider just how dangerous stupid people are. And also to think about his argument that he provocatively puts forward that there are way more people who behave in this socially stupid way than you think. That's an interesting idea too. So I hope you found that interesting and I hope that gives you food for thought. Don't forget to check out my books. I have two books that you can get on Amazon in paperback, ebook and audiobook format. They are Becoming an Entrepreneur and Job Free. That's all for this week. I hope you have a great week and I'll be back next week with another episode. Thank you for listening to The Voluntary Life. If you have feedback about the show, please email jake at thevoluntarylife.com. If you enjoyed this program, please share the podcast with your friends or click the donate button on thevoluntarylife.com.
What do we really know about our past? Are we suffering from a collective memory loss? Was there a technically advanced unified civilization on Earth less than 500 years ago? 500 what role did the world's fairs play in introducing forgotten technology? Forgotten technology. How long do you generally sleep each night, Mr. Foley? Eight hours? 441,504,000 seconds of time you just throw away. Throw away. Did someone secretly destroy remnants of old world structures under the pretense of a temporary exposition? Temporary exposition. Nothing is as it seems. It's time for us to remember again and lift the veil of deception. Introduction. In order to understand the spiritual background typical of every non-modern civilization, it is necessary to retain the idea that the opposition between historical times and prehistoric or mythological times is the qualitative and substantial opposition between times that are not of the same kind. If modern man until recently had conceived and extolled the meaning of history as evolution, as higher development, the truth known by traditional man was exactly the opposite. In all the ancient testimonies of traditional mankind, one can find again and again, in one way or another, the thought of a regression, of a fall. From originally higher stages, we have descended to stages more and more conditioned by the human, mortal, and accidental element. To assert, as one must traditionally assert, that in the beginning there existed not an animal-like caveman, but a more-than-man, and that even ancient prehistory knows not only culture, but even an era of gods, means purest mythology to many who believe in the gospel of Darwinism. In the previous part, the destruction of the old world, we explained how social conditions changed abruptly as a result of a cataclysmic event, be it a natural disaster or a war or both, loosely between the early 18th and the late 19th century. This event is also known as the Reset. The Industrial Revolution was one of the most obvious consequences of this reset. After the disappearance of the old world, a power vacuum arose that was exploited by a small power elite to disempower the old kingdoms. They divided the world among themselves through imperialism and the establishment of modern nation-states. 
In the course of industrialization, the invisible ruling powers were faced with the challenge of convincing the masses of their secret plans. The world exhibitions were created as a way to reach this goal. In all likelihood, these exhibitions were created to introduce certain technologies into society, or rather, to reintroduce them. The first major world's fair was held in London in 1851, consistent with the role of the British crown as a major political player at the time. 1851 must therefore be regarded as a symbolic year for the peak of the Industrial Revolution. Supposedly, a third of the entire population of Britain, six million people, visited the great exhibition of the works of industry of all nations. However, the transfer of knowledge and technology targeted by these exhibitions may have begun as early as the 1840s. The French Industrial Exhibition, held in Paris in 1844, was considered a precursor to the Great London World's Fair of 1851. In Germany, World's Fairs were usually called trade and industry exhibitions, although Germany played a rather minor role compared to the others. It should be noted that this also applies to Germany's role as a colonial power. European policy has always been clearly directed against Germany and the German population. The reasons for this remain speculative. Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and America, controlled by the British Crown, should be considered the most important players of the Industrial Age. These countries, already mostly controlled by the Cabal at the time, hosted virtually all of the world's fairs. The term Cabal describes the hierarchical, monolithic organization operating out of secrecy which has its roots in the ancient mystery cults. This Cabal was able to spread across the earth like a spider's web, especially after the last reset. Shortly before his death, John F. Kennedy likely referred to this very Cabal when he said, for we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. Who exactly was Kennedy referring to here? Is it merely the danger of communism, as is often claimed? Or could he have been referring to the group that UFO researcher Richard Dolan has dubbed the breakaway civilization? Although Kennedy may have been a part of this cabal, his words still ring true. Ultimately, the elite control all sides through the dialectic process where the world is a stage and they pull the strings. Just as the aristocratic elite were replaced by a new political power structure during the French Revolution, 
In our time, there are also pre-planned power struggles that appear natural to the uninitiated observer. On a political level, we know this under the name COINTELPRO, short for Counterintelligence Program. It refers to the infiltration of political groups by the FBI during the early days of the Cold War. Nowadays, the term controlled opposition is most often used to describe resistance movements being deliberately built and controlled in order to neutralize the energy of the masses and channel it into activities acceptable to the elite. The process of dialectics, i.e. the study of opposites and their resolution, is a fundamental aspect of mass psychology. Usually, on emotionally loaded issues, the masses split into two opposite poles, thus creating a field of tension. To control people, it is necessary to control both poles of this field. By controlling both poles, thesis and antithesis, the desired synthesis outcome can be predicted. The Kennedy assassination was a sort of alchemical process, as the American authors James Shelby Downard and Michael Hoffman describe in their work King Kill 33. The regicide is an ancient magical ritual that creates social renewal. Ritual regicide is well studied in research, see René Girard, James Fraser, and is found in all ages and societies. Big media events are, according to Downard and Hoffman, largely planned beforehand with the sole purpose to transform humanity. In the alchemical sense, it is about dissolving the divinely predetermined order to create a satanic order, solve et coagula. For this purpose, such media-staged psychodrama is essential to reach the masses. Besides John F. Kennedy, we also see these staged dramas in the deaths of Princess Diana and Michael Jackson. Collective energy is built up to channel and ritually sacrifice the hope of the masses. We can observe this process again at present. If you are attentive, you can see in the current political developments all the signs of an artificial transformation of society orchestrated by shock. The uprooting from the past is the foundation for all further developments. Manly P. Hall, Freemason and initiated occultist, writes in his book, The Adepts in the Western Esoteric Tradition. The alchemical tradition contains all the elements of a world program of enlightenment and reform it requires only a superficial acquaintance with the philosophy and literature of alchemy in order to sense the magnitude of this concealed project. The alchemical laboratory became the shrine of the spiritual sciences, taking the place of the ruined sanctuaries of the ancient mysteries. Now let's return to the breakaway civilization. This term was coined by Richard Dolan in his book UFOs and the National Security State. He came to the conclusion that an elite group with access to high technology and secret knowledge has followed its own path of development, independent of the rest of humanity. This allowed a parallel civilization to establish itself on Earth that we know little about today. According to Dolan, they probably live in huge interconnected underground bases. They are financed by black budgets, 
the visible part of which is called the Deep State, but their structures go much deeper. They have their own view of the cosmos and our place in the world, of our history and our origins. They keep their knowledge secret, and much of their work is to keep the public ignorant. To quote Richard Dolan, There is a clandestine group that possesses technology that is vastly superior to that of the mainstream world, the ability to explore areas of our world and surroundings presently unavailable to the rest of us. They have scientific and cosmological understandings that give them greater insights into the nature of our world, and a significant built-off-the-grid infrastructure, partially underground, that affords them a high degree of secrecy and independence of action. In our own official world history, you go back 200 years and compare levels of technology from Europe to, say, Central Africa, and you're talking about two vastly different ways of understanding the world. So really, what is the difficulty in understanding that a classified, secret scientific community would make radical breakthroughs that they wouldn't share? I don't think it's outrageous. And I do think this has happened since World War II. Now one of the breakthroughs they've made is in what we call anti-gravity technology. Could this have happened in the 19th century? I don't think that it's impossible in theory. I have speculated privately many times whether there has been a secret breakaway group going back to ancient times. When you look at some of the really puzzling mysteries of our ancient world, whether it's the Great Pyramid of Giza or Machu Picchu, there are elements of those and other architectural sites that have been left behind that, to me at least, don't make a whole lot of sense in the context of human society as it then was supposed to have existed. The Great Pyramid doesn't make sense to me in terms of 2,500 years ago ancient Egyptian culture. I wonder if this was a human construct at the time, and what human civilization are we talking about here? Could it be that this civilization, split off from our official historical line of development, is behind many of the events of the 20th century? And what of the world's fairs? Were a large proportion of the world's fair buildings actually built from scratch, as the official historiography claims? There is much to suggest that the robber barons of the Industrial Age not only hid once widespread technological knowledge from us, but that they also hijacked some of the impressive architectural masterpieces in which parts of this knowledge was displayed. Some of the buildings from the world's fairs still exist today, and they are obviously not made of plaster or similar fragile materials. Were they subsequently rebuilt to be permanent structures? Is it even possible that the elaborately designed expo sites were built with the technological capabilities of the time within just a few months, only to be destroyed again a few months later after the exhibitions had ended? Or is it plausible that after a great catastrophe, the worldwide remains of the preceding high culture were not only systematically destroyed, but also pressed into an image of history imposed on us? Some available information suggests that even after the worldwide, game-changing event we call the Reset or Mud Flood, there still remained countless complete and beautiful cities that were conquered by a new power elite and then repurposed as world's fairs. Especially in America, the so-called New World, the many Greco-Roman cities 
would have been difficult to explain because, in contrast to Europe, the Americans do not have an official Greco-Roman history. The more carefully one investigates, the more difficult it becomes to find plausible explanations for the construction and destruction of these extraordinary and huge exhibition areas. The official version about the World's Fairs can be summarized as follows. People in the 19th century loved Greco-Roman architecture for reasons unknown, so it was extremely important to the architects who organized the World's Fairs between 1850 and about 1914 to build in a classical style. Note, with World War I, classical architectural ambitions in Europe ended abruptly, and many exhibitions also did not take place as planned. It was only in the wake of fascism that there was a return to ancient design principles, but these were often implemented superficially and were mainly applied to a few representative, magnificent buildings. After the Second World War, on the other hand, classical architecture was deliberately replaced with new trends, e.g. Bauhaus and brutalism. Officially, the intention was to create an aesthetic distance to fascism, but in all likelihood its purpose was to cut the connection to the old world through soulless, brutalistic architecture. No effort was spared for the world's fairs. Enormous amounts of work went into creating complex statues, ornaments, columns, parks, buildings, and even the world's largest organs. No expenses were spared in the making of these massive structures. Made of plaster and linen or hemp fibers, they were only intended to last for the duration of the expo. However, the attention to detail was so great that purely visually there seemed to be no difference between the expo buildings and the classical splendor buildings of antiquity. The purpose of the World's Fairs was to make the supposedly new technologies discovered during the Industrial Revolution palatable to the masses, to create new markets. In the end, most of the buildings were torn down, with only meadows or empty parks remaining. Funding Quite a few fairs were enormous monetary losses. This is astonishing in that the initial motivation for the exhibition supposedly came from the industrialists themselves. The investment deficits could indicate that the fairs had a hidden agenda that was not profit-oriented. Berlin, Germany, 1896. With an investment volume of 10 million Reichsmarks, the trade exhibition closed with a deficit of 2 million Reichsmarks, which Berlin's economy was left with. Unlike the accompanying colonial exhibition, which enjoyed generous state support from the foreign office, the trade exhibition had to manage without financial contributions. Lübeck, Germany, 1895. Although a total of 750,000 visitors came, 
The German Nordic Trade and Industry Exhibition closed with a financial deficit. The exhibition buildings were completely demolished after the end of the event, and a residential area was created on the Marley site, which became part of the Lübeck suburb of St. Gertrude, which was developed in terms of urban development in the first half of the 20th century. Nuremberg, Germany, 1906. Despite the 2.5 million visitors, the Bavarian Jubilee Exhibition of 1906 is a financial loss for Nuremberg. St. Louis, USA, 1904. In the end, the Expo made a loss of $8.5 million. This is the equivalent of more than $250 million today. Philadelphia, USA, 1926. The exhibition attracted far fewer visitors than the $10 million originally planned. In the end, it was unable to service its debts and went bankrupt in 1927. Now let's take a closer look at some of these expos. Panama Pacific International Exposition, USA, 1915. When the Panama Pacific International Exposition opened in 1915, European nations were already entangled in the First World War. The annihilation of the old monarchies had begun. The European continent was being reshaped and all areas of government, society, economy, and culture were undergoing fundamental change. The city of San Francisco itself was just recovering from the terrible earthquakes and fires that had raged in 1906. Yet, in the midst of these hectic times, an exposition, unimaginably large by today's standards, opened its doors to celebrate the completion of the Panama Canal in August 1914. The fairgrounds covered 600 acres and two and a half miles along the waterfront, receiving nearly 20 million visitors between February 20th and December 4th, 1915, making it one of the most successful expositions of the time. Because of its size and expansive grounds, it was virtually impossible for guests to see the entire fair even after multiple visits. Most of the buildings, it is said, were made of wood, plaster, and linen fiber in order to keep costs as low as possible and to be able to demolish them quickly once the World's Fair was over. However, if we take a closer look at some of the photos of these brand new buildings, doubts about the official story quickly arise. Many buildings, for example, show signs of age shortly after completion and appear to be heavily eroded, such as the Fountain of the Earth. If the official origin story is coherent, shouldn't these buildings have looked brand new? Instead, from the very beginning, we are looking at ancient monuments that might as well have come from the fabled Atlantis or ancient Rome. The architect of the Palace of Fine Arts, Bernard R. Maybeck, is quoted as saying that every great city needs ruins. That's why the palace was supposed to fall into disrepair after the expo ended, some of whose structures were really only meant to last for the duration of the exhibition. 
It is said that even as it was being built, it was inspired by Roman overgrown ruins, in keeping with the mood of 18th century Piranesi engravings, who became famous for his painting of ruins. But isn't the palace still holding up remarkably well in this photo from 1919, a full four years after the expo ended? Where are the weather-related signs of decay? There are further contradictions. Allegedly, all buildings were only cheaply and quickly raised from the plaster, but the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium still stands today. Unlike the Palace of Fine Arts, it was never fundamentally renovated or rebuilt, so it has always been made of solid stone, even according to the official narrative. Let us now turn our attention once again to the Palace of Fine Arts and let some contemporary witnesses have their say. Professor Von Nopen of Columbia University noted that The Palace of Fine Arts is so sublime, so majestic, and is the product of such imagination that it would have graced the age of Pericles. Thomas Edison was also full of enthusiasm. The architect of that building is a genius. There is nothing equal anywhere on earth. Are these really statements one would expect to hear about a newly constructed contemporary building of plaster and linen? And Louis Christian Molgart, one of the architects of the exposition, told the Commonwealth Club, When the exposition buildings are torn down, then we will have destroyed one of the greatest architectural units which has ever been created in the history of the world. It's hard to believe that he was merely talking about temporary new buildings. Toward the end of his life, the famous Molgart ended up impoverished in the insane asylum at Stockton, California. Is it possible that he could never really live with the lie of having claimed the creation of various architectural masterpieces? A wealthy San Francisco citizen, Phoebe Apperson Hearst, wife of industrialist robber baron George Hearst, founded the Palace Preservation League while the expo was still running, and it was only thanks to this effort that the palace was not demolished. Her son, the publisher of the San Francisco Examiner, William Randolph Hearst, contributed to the success of the campaign. But the official story goes like this. Although the palace was saved from demolition, its structure was not stable. Originally intended to last only for the duration of the exhibition, the colonnade and rotunda were not built of durable materials, but were framed with wood and then covered with rods, a mixture of plaster and linen-like fibers. As a result of construction and vandalism, the simulated ruin was indeed a crumbling ruin by the 1950s. So we are to believe that the Palace Preservation League went to great lengths to save a temporary ruin from destruction. More likely is the following scenario. The palace was never rebuilt, only renovated, because it was a normal, permanent building. In the official narrative, the renovation from 1964 onwards was then possibly turned into the creation of a new permanent building. On the original photos from the time after the expo, columns made of wood and plaster are clearly visible. 
So, if the video material hasn't been manipulated, it indicates that the Palace of Fine Arts was indeed a modern and temporary new building made of cheap materials. However, to get a better idea of the temporary materials used at this point, let us take a look at the correspondence of Bernard Maybeck, the alleged architect of the Palace of Fine Arts, with an Australian architect named Walter Burley Griffin. In this correspondence, Maybeck suggests to Griffin that, just as with the Panama Pacific International Exposition, the new Australian capital should be built of wood and stucco to generate public enthusiasm for classicist architecture and then, by means of public support, be able to finish the city with durable materials. Griffin frostily informed Maybeck, however, that plaster or stucco are hardly considered as temporary expedients in Australia, for they are largely employed for buildings both commercial and governmental already deemed to be permanent. This shows how absurd the idea is to classify buildings as temporary just because they are clad in stucco. Countless houses of the German Gründerzeit and the American Gilded Age consist mainly of stucco, plaster, and wood. Yet they have already stood for more than a hundred years without any major signs of decay. Therefore, two things can be said about the Palace of Fine Arts. While historical and photographic records suggest that solid materials such as stone or cement were not used in the original construction, building with materials such as wood or plaster does not necessarily mean that structures fall apart after a short period of time which was obviously not the case with the Palace of Fine Arts either. On the contrary, it had to withstand quite a lot, as it was not only used for art exhibitions. During the Second World War, it was used by the military for the storage of trucks and jeeps. Later on, it was used as a storage for other materials and even as a temporary headquarters for the fire brigade. Whether the official construction of the Palace of Fine Arts for the 1915 exposition was just a basic repair or renovation or a new building cannot be said with definitive certainty. On closer examination, we notice a glaring contradiction. The alleged new building was decorated with the symbol of the Svastika, which was revered as a good luck charm in old times. However, in the course of World War II, it got practically banned from public use in the USA. So why is it depicted on this new build from the 1960s? Despite the uncertainty, the palace seems to be one of the most popular examples when it comes to exposing the official Expo narrative as a lie. Yet, there are plenty of other, more obvious examples, the most interesting of which we will discuss during this documentary. It appears that the Expo organizer's plan always was to completely destroy everything after the exhibitions ended. However, this often resulted in a public backlash, meaning that at least some of these structures were preserved thanks to the public outcry. For example, the Palace of Fine Arts, the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium, and the Japanese Tea House still exist today. But what about the many photos that supposedly show construction and demolition of the world's fairs? It would be relatively easy to document only the demolition of those buildings that were actually only temporarily erected. 
Furthermore, there is the possibility that the photographs selling us the construction process were actually taken during the demolition of the buildings or during a renovation. Further meticulous research would be needed to arrive at a clearer picture which goes beyond the scope of this documentary. Interestingly, some of the public photo archives have only been put online after websites like StolenHistory.net pointed out inconsistencies in the narrative. For example, the St. Louis Public Library Digital Collections only just went online in 2019. Northwest German Trade and Industrial Exhibition, Bremen, Germany, 1890. The Northwest German Trade and Industrial Exhibition in Bremen's Burgerpark in 1890 poses a couple of mysteries. This wine house is supposed to be a wooden house and said to be a cheap copy of a real old Hanseatic merchant's house. This is hardly credible as the wine house seems to be embedded in a street of other authentic historical houses. And why was this building actually demolished immediately after the exhibition ended? Even if the house was made entirely of wood, it could have been left standing. A hundred years ago, Bremen's architecture was overwhelmingly medieval Hanseatic. Nobody would have thought of imitating a house like this one for exhibition purposes since the city was full of such houses. The story only makes sense if the real intention was to destroy as many old-world buildings as possible, be it through accidental fires, world exhibitions, or other modernization projects. The most impressive building of the Bremen World's Fair, the multi-story park house, was also accidentally burned down a few years after the expo. This photo shows a modern steel bridge against the backdrop of historic domed buildings. As the city's newspaper, Weser Courier, notes, not only a strange but an almost paradoxical contrast. This paradox is only resolved if we assume that the steel bridge was actually built for the exhibition, but that the classical buildings were already standing beforehand. In another photo, the ex-director of Bremen's Burgerpark, architect Wilhelm Benck, is shown with a hidden hand, a typical Masonic pose, which, according to Duncan's ritual and monitor of Freemasonry, reveals him to be a master of the second veil. The hidden hand likely lets the other initiates know that the individual depicted is part of the secret elite, that his deeds have been sanctioned from above, as well as partially done in secret. Long before the advent of mass media historical figures, Napoleon being one of the most famous, have been depicted in hidden hand portraits. Coincidence? It appears to have been this hidden power that has shaped world events in recent centuries. Shortly after the end of the Bremen exhibition, Wilhelm Benck promptly spoke out and defamed one of the most impressive buildings of the exhibitions, the multi-story park house. In January 1891, he attacked the building he hated so much publicly in the local newspaper. The debate about the beautiful building only ended when the structure went up in flames in 1907, the official explanation being fireworks that went out of control. The phenomenon that most of the World's Fair's structures mysteriously disappeared is not an isolated case, 
but can be observed in many of the expos between 1850 and 1920. Was there something to hide? The argument that the buildings were simply poorly built and that they would have inevitably fallen into disrepair quickly is inaccurate, because even today some of the Expo buildings are still standing. The solid stone observation tower in Bremen's Burger Park, for example, was not completely demolished until 1962, mainly because it was badly damaged during World War II. In fact, all of the Expo buildings that are still standing today are built so solidly that they hardly age. It is reported of the pavilion of the Bremen Cigar Company Engelhardt and Biermann, now known as the Waldbühne, that it was destroyed immediately after the exhibition. After all, it was only made of temporary materials, only to be rebuilt true to the original, but this time in a permanent form. We are even told that the cigar company was kind enough to pay for the demolition and rebuilding entirely out of their own pockets. How credible that is, you can decide for yourself. Great Exhibition, London, Great Britain, 1851. The London Crystal Palace Exhibition was the first prominent worldwide industrial exhibition. A whole 28 countries with a total of 17,062 exhibitors on a total area of over 80,000 square meters took part and received about 6 million visitors in six months, a quantity comparable to about one-third of the total population of Great Britain at that time. To appreciate the full scale, it is necessary to imagine that the gigantic glass house, fitted with cast iron frame elements, was estimated to be three times the size of St. Paul's Cathedral or four times the size of St. Peter's Basilica. In total, it is said 4,000 tons of iron were processed for columns, trellis girders, and gutters, and about 153,000 square meters of glass were produced. 80 glaziers are said to have installed 18,000 panes in one week, and more than 5,000 workers are said to have been employed on the building during the construction phase. A civil engineer remarked about the Crystal Palace, I'm a civil engineer, and I consider the construction of the Crystal Palace in 39 weeks from approval to opening to be complete nonsense. The glass they apparently had to use is cylinder glass, measuring 1.25 by 0.25 meters, which was very labor-intensive. It had to be blown in a trench, cut, and then polished. So the glass alone would have been impossible to make in the four months given. About 153,000 square meters of glass, with no machinery, just horses for power. You couldn't make it in 39 weeks today, let alone in 1850. Add to this the fact that simple automation processes for the mass production of glass did not develop until 30 years later. So everything had to be produced by hand, and the distance from the glassworks in Smethwick to Hyde Park, where the Crystal Palace was originally built, was around 209 kilometers. 
And as if all this wasn't fantastic enough, the glass palace was completely dismantled after the exhibition and then rebuilt in a larger form in Sydenham Hill and used as a museum there. To bring visitors to the London exhibition site, two stations were newly built, both confusingly called Crystal Palace and differing only in their underground and overground locations, respectively. The fire that destroyed the Crystal Palace in 1936 made the high-level station virtually redundant, which is why it was eventually demolished. The beautifully tiled subway, supposedly built by Italian masons and stonemasons, however, survived. Incidentally, parliamentary buildings made of wood and plaster were erected especially for the Festival of the Empire, which was one of the largest single events in London's Crystal Palace and took place on 12th May 1911. These buildings were also intended to be used only temporarily and were connected by an electric tramway, the so-called All Red Route. For example, the replica of the Canadian and New Zealand Parliament buildings, the former visible on the left in the foreground of the Crystal Palace. On November 30, 1936, however, the Crystal Palace fell victim to a devastating major fire. Michelle Gibson writes about this. We learn that the Crystal Palace was moved to Sydenham Hill in South London in 1854 and rebuilt and that it was later destroyed by fire in 1936. How did they manage to move a massive building made of glass panels and cast iron, three times the size of St. Paul's Cathedral in London, to another location? The New York Crystal Palace was also destroyed by fire, but much earlier than the London Crystal Palace. The Crystal Palace in New York burned down in 1858, apparently in front of a large audience. In an article that takes a closer look at these events, it states, 500 firefighters and 90 fire trucks were needed to put it out, and another 749 police officers to control the crowds. Witnesses described, quote, so much molten glass that it looked like a waterfall, even like a Niagara Falls of molten glass. According to one eyewitness, the glass actually caught fire, and when it was really hot, there was a sodium flame, and the molten glass poured straight down. Mrs. Ford from Sydenham described, hot molten glass and metal flowed down the street, and adults formed a human chain and passed buckets of water from hand to hand to stem the flow of hot glass. Another witness recalled that people picked it up and rolled it into balls to keep as souvenirs. However, the two towers of the palace are said to have remained standing, even deformed by the fire. The flames were accompanied by clouds of sparks and violent explosions. The reference to the explosions, by the way, is noted only in a few records. The fire burned with great intensity all night. Even 20 hours later, there were reportedly still pockets of fire. The British press considered the destruction of the Crystal Palace a serious blow to the political power of England, and the public wondered how steel and glass can burn so fiercely. It is important to know that in glass production, the raw materials are heated to about 
1,600 to 1,800 degrees Celsius, but finished glass can melt between 600 and 800 degrees Celsius. Cast iron, when compared with other alloys, has a relatively low melting point of around 1,150 degrees Celsius. But the question is where the temperature should have come from and whether furnishings would already have been sufficient to generate heat of this magnitude. Incidentally, there has never been an official investigation into this incident and the fire is still considered unsolved to this day. Chicago World's Fair, USA, 1893 On May 1, 1893, the city of Chicago held the World's Columbian Exposition to celebrate the discovery of America by Columbus 400 years earlier. In fact, the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago was to be the largest to date. 70,000 exhibitors from 46 nations were present. 25,000 of them from the USA alone, to present their technical achievements, marking the beginning of a new era. Not only a film projector, the first dishwasher, a fully electric kitchen, an elevated train with electric drive, and a rolling footbridge could be marveled at, but also the amusement park with fairground stalls, circus performers, artificial ice rinks, and an 80-meter-high Ferris wheel attracted numerous visitors. The organizers of the fair hoped to demonstrate the great industrial might of the United States and symbolize the transfer of leadership from the old world to the new. Which, given the historical background, may have been a coded message as well except that the term old world may mean something different than what we learn nowadays. The Chicago Expo, which makes us think involuntarily of ancient Rome, was nicknamed White City and was the inspiration for the Emerald City in the book The Wizard of Oz. Here is one of the sketches that illustrator W. W. Denslow made in response to the Chicago Expo for The Wizard of Oz. The tops of the domes are studded with crystals, hence the name Emerald City in the book. Here, Denslow stands against the backdrop of the Expo site after the devastating fire and on the verge of complete demolition. Interestingly, Indian researcher Praveen Mohan describes in his videos that many ancient Indian temples were originally studded with crystals at the top. Some, like the Somawatiya Pagoda, still have those crystals today. Does the Wizard of Oz contain an unconscious collective memory of humanity? Or did Denslow possibly know something that is no longer available to us today? In any case, the Chicago World's Fair was one of the most impressive exhibitions ever in architectural terms. According to the story presented to us, over 200 buildings were built on the shores of Lake Michigan on an area of 278 hectares in only three years. Paradoxically, the construction period coincides with the period of economic depression, and the Panic of 1893 was the most severe economic crisis in the history of the United States to date. Who would have thought that in such a time there were enough workers and resources to build an almost paradisiacal city? 
Were these buildings actually designed by architects Daniel Burnham and Frederick Law Olmsted and meant to be understood as a homage to Greco-Roman architecture? Or did some of them already exist before the expo began? Were they showing the public the remains of the old world one last time, only to destroy them afterwards? Considering the immense effort that was necessary to construct the buildings, the official explanation hardly seems plausible, especially since there are only a few photos of the construction phase or precise records of the course of the complex construction projects. This discrepancy between the functionality of the building as an exhibition object and the effort of construction is most evident in the colossal Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building. This 200-meter-wide and 500-meter-long building required twice as much steel as the Brooklyn Bridge and was four times the size of the Roman Colosseum. It may even have been one of the largest buildings ever built, covering an almost unimaginable area of about 20 football fields this huge building housed numerous items from manufactories around the world that supposedly represented the level of technical expertise that had emerged since industrialization. This construction alone would have taken years and consumed numerous resources, even if you believe the official narrative of a temporary building. Nevertheless, the building was completely demolished after the expo. Of the more than 200 buildings, 14 had similar dimensions to the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building, and they too were almost all destroyed after the 130-day duration of the exhibition. Today, only two buildings remain, the so-called Museum of Science and Industry and the World's Congress Auxiliary Building. Considering the high effort of the construction, the question arises why only two of these buildings were allowed to remain standing, since other possible uses would have been quite conceivable, and it sounds very unbelievable that such immense resources were simply wasted. The following photo purportedly shows the construction of the administration building. A photographer told us about this. Without access to the originals, it is difficult to say whether the image here is a true photograph. In this version, however, a pencil drawing was clearly applied. My professional opinion is that all the pictures I have found of this building have been altered in some way. None of these pictures can be used as evidence that the building is under construction. In my opinion, the photos indicate restoration rather than construction, based on the anomalies marked in the photo. He further notes that the following photos of the construction process are contradictory. Both photos are presented as evidence of the construction of the building. First of all, I would like to give you a short hint and emphasize that both pictures are misleading in their presentation. In the right picture, the dome appears to be completely finished, while in the left picture, it is clearly not. But in the right photo, the smaller domes that are at each corner of the central part of the building are missing, while in the left photo, with the dome still incomplete, the smaller domes are present. The construction process in the right photo appears to be almost complete. So why would these smaller domes be missing? 
Another interesting building at the Columbia Exposition was the main train station on the Expo grounds, whose entire rail system consisted of 35 tracks. By comparison, the main station in Munich, one of the largest stations in Germany, has only 34 tracks. Allegedly, the entire station was only temporary in nature, but it begs the question of how it would even be possible to build a station in such a way that it was stable and functional, but still temporary in nature. The only photo of the alleged construction of the station building shows a building already completely finished amidst mud. It appears to have been nothing more than freshly painted. Of the construction process itself, according to our research, not a single photo exists. A few months after the expo, the station burned to the ground along with other buildings at the exhibition. Cause of the fire? Arson by unknown. The official story is this. A security guard at the expo, conveniently called C. Mason, noticed the fire in the casino and also immediately tried to sound the alarm. Unfortunately, none of the five devices to activate the fire alarm worked, which he tried out in quick succession. Fortunately, he eventually found a phone, so he was finally able to report the fire. By then, however, it was already too late, and due to changed official procedures, only ten fire trucks were able to arrive at the scene instead of the usual twenty. It is also possible that this fire and subsequent demolition shortly after the expo ended is related to the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. There are some contradictions with this fire. Officially, the cause of the Great Chicago Fire was that a cow knocked over a lantern. Evidence for this theory was never presented. Were the remains of the old world destroyed here in two phases? first with the city fire that claimed the lives of some 17,500 buildings, and later with the demolition of the expo site? Were there even two separate fires? Were there fires at all? Questions upon questions. Supposedly, by the mid-19th century, Chicago had rapidly developed from a small Indian settlement into the huge metropolis we know today. But again, there is no documentation of the logistics of city planning. Interestingly, Chicago appears with the name Chilaga on old maps. So was this possibly an important old world city? And was Chilaga deliberately renamed Chicago to obscure its history? If we look at the white city of the expo mentioned earlier from this point of view, the area could in fact have been a government district of Chilaga that was converted to a modern expo area. So, did the 27 million people who visited the exhibition actually witness the destruction of one of the last parts of Chilaga? The Statue of the Republic, which was on display at the Chicago World's Fair, holds in its right hand a sphere on which an eagle with outstretched wings is enthroned while its left hand adorns a staff with a Phrygian cap, which was a symbol of the Scythians, or Tartars, and presumably symbolized freedom and justice. In the course of the Age of Enlightenment, the Phrygian cap continued to be used as a symbol of freedom. Significantly, in the same year that the Chicago Expo was being planned, the new University of Chicago was founded, 
considered one of the most important private American university foundations of the era, generously supported by oil magnate John D. Rockefeller. And this very university bears in its coat of arms a griffin burning in fire, in which one could also recognize a symbol for the destruction of the Old World Empire. Some symbols, such as the double-headed eagle, the mythological griffin, the quadriga, i.e. four-horse, and the lion, we encounter again and again in the context of the Old World. Louisiana Purchase Exposition, St. Louis, USA, 1904. The Louisiana Purchase Expo, also known as the St. Louis World's Fair, was twice the size of the Chicago Expo and consisted of more than 1,500 buildings connected by roads and trails over a length of 121 kilometers. Only two buildings are said to have been solidly and permanently built while all the others were demolished immediately after the expo. The whole thing was financed with more than 15 million U.S. dollars at a time when St. Louis was in economic distress and its citizens were plagued by corruption, poverty, and dis-ease. The planning of the expo itself was also overshadowed by several cases of corruption. The first five million was provided by the city of St. Louis through the sale of municipal bonds. Another five million was raised through private donations from interested citizens and businesses throughout Missouri. The final five million came in the form of funds that were part of a congressional appropriation bill passed in late May 1900. In the end, the Expo made a loss of $8.5 million, the equivalent of more than $250 million today. But if there was no financial incentive for the Expo, what was the point? On the official Expo website, we can read, As the majority of the pavilions were built to be temporary, few legacies remain today. However, the Palace of Visual Arts still stands in its place and now serves as the Museum of Arts of St. Louis, one of the largest art museums in the United States. The Missouri Exposition Pavilion, as the largest and most impressive building, was supposed to have been preserved for future generations, but it burned down barely two weeks before the end of the Expo on November 18, 1904. As it was said, a reconstruction was therefore renounced. The site was also home to the world's largest organ and dome at the time. The Festival Hall was another staple of the Expo in St. Louis, featuring the largest dome in the world at the time. The building featured three water cascades draining into the Fountain of Liberty, which was adorned with statues personifying liberty, the largest of the statues, genius, and inspiration. The approximately 4.9 square kilometer fairgrounds used for the World's Fair were located on what is now Forest Park, and the Washington University campus, and it was the largest fair area in the world at that time. The 
the total construction time was less than three years, and the Palace of Agriculture alone took up a staggering 81,000 square feet. It was said to be impossible to get even a glimpse of everything in less than a week. More than 19 million people are said to have visited the expo at that time. Remarkable, considering that St. Louis had only half a million residents back then. One observer of the World's Fair noted at the time that the streets of St. Louis were full of life, more so than any other city in the North. George Kessler was the architect of the expo. But, oddly enough, there is a popular myth that says Frederick Law Olmsted actually designed the fairgrounds. There are hundreds of photos of the alleged construction process of the expo, and of course, various buildings were indeed newly constructed for the expo, especially the trashy structures that lack the classicist aesthetic. Existing structures also appear to have been outfitted with obviously primitive, tasteless decorations. However, the photographs purporting to show the construction process of the grand, impressive classical exhibition palaces may as well have been made during the demolition. Historian Dr. Robert Archibald says about the St. Louis Expo, the fair planners had a contractual obligation to demolish the fairgrounds and return Forest Park to sort of a predetermined lands. They were legally obligated to do that. The problem on the pike was they were all concessionaires and everything they had set up was all theirs. They couldn't sell it for anything. The costs of demolition were greater than the value of what there was to salvage. This defies all economic logic and only makes sense if there was a secret agreement between the city and the industrialists. They had to erase all traces of the expo against any natural economic impulse of these entrepreneurs who always strive to maximize profits. The story we are being served up is almost perfect, but on closer inspection, we see that it has been reversed. Thus, pictures of the demolition were probably simply declared to be shots of the construction process. And the photos of the empty site after the demolition are now sold to us as photos taken before the construction. The digitized archive photos are in all likelihood a mixture of authentic, real new buildings, demolition photos, and manipulated photo collages. Panama, California Exposition, San Diego, USA, 1915. President Theodore Roosevelt speaking to visitors outside the exposition's organ pavilion on July 27, 1915, said, It is so beautiful that I wish to make an earnest plea. I hope that not only will you keep these buildings running for another year, but you will keep these buildings of rare, phenomenal taste and beauty permanently. The official guidebook accompanying the San Diego Expo lists the permanent and temporary buildings and describes that the temporary buildings will be demolished soon after the Expo. But most of these buildings, the official narrative says, were nonetheless in use for more than 50 years, 
and were reused during the second San Diego Expo in 1935. How is it possible that these buildings easily lasted another 50 years or even longer if they were only built with limited durability only for the period of the first Expo? Officially, the remaining structures were rebuilt in the second half of the 20th century and are now known as the Casa del Prado, Balboa Park in modern San Diego. To summarize, temporary buildings are erected that are supposed to last only a few years, but they easily last more than 50 years and continue to be used until they suddenly fall into disrepair. But because they're so beautiful, they are rebuilt with more massive materials in the 1960s and 1990s. In the official guidebook of the exhibition, we can read that many visitors of past exhibitions were disappointed because most of the buildings were immediately demolished again. The planners of the Panama, California Expo in San Diego therefore note, Nothing connected with past fairs has been so depressing as the destruction of the buildings after the exposition was over. This will not be the case when, on January 1st, 1916, the Panama-California Exposition is closed, for all the structures except the concession buildings along the Isthmus have been built to stay. In the Great West Quadrangle, for example, all the structures are built entirely of steel and concrete and will be used in decades to come for housing the museum exhibits, which have been donated to the exposition. It is not known whether this pamphlet was printed after Theodore Roosevelt had advocated for the preservation of the buildings. However, the quote from Roosevelt would have been extremely odd if it had already been officially known at the time that most of the buildings were to be preserved. One can assume that the planners began to sweat a bit after prominent protests were directed against the demolition plans, and therefore they had to change their narrative somewhat. Further, we learn that the subsequent expo, the California Pacific International Exposition, on the same grounds in 1935, was so popular that some buildings were converted from temporary to permanent. Many buildings or reconstructed versions are still in use today and are used by several museums and theaters in Balboa Park. The Casa del Prado was supposedly demolished in the 60s and rebuilt true to the original in permanent form. The House of Charm and the House of Hospitality were even only rebuilt in the 1990s. And this despite the fact that the official Expo booklet stated that the temporary buildings were designed for a maximum lifespan of 30 years. Here we encounter the usual story again. If some buildings of the Expos were not demolished, they were supposedly demolished and then rebuilt in a permanent way. Although enormous sums were already invested in the renovation process of the supposedly temporary buildings before their demolition. Ironically, in the early 1960s, the destruction of some buildings and their replacement with modern, architecturally inappropriate structures caused an uproar in San Diego. In 1967, some citizens formed a Committee of 100 to protect and preserve the historic structures. The movement was a success and the historic buildings were preserved or rebuilt. 
Isn't it amazing the persistence with which certain forces seem to push to erase the old architecture? We are beginning to see a pattern. The public was shocked every time the exhibition buildings disappeared again and the planners couldn't move fast enough to destroy everything again if possible. Another temporary building, the Electrical Building, burned down in 1978, allegedly by arson of two youths. According to the official story, it was then rebuilt true to the original in a permanent form. The old Globe Theater, originally built for the Expo in 1935, also burned down in 1978 as a result of arson. Quote from Wikipedia. Bertram Goodhue, master architect of the 1915-16 Panama, California Exposition, had urged that the temporary buildings on Balboa Park's main avenue, El Prado, be torn down. But the citizens of San Diego spurned this advice. With the help of federal government money, they patched up the temporary palaces in 1922 and 1933. This allowed most of the original buildings to be reused for the second exhibition in 1935. Specifically about the House of Charm, which now houses the Art Museum, we read, Although there were ongoing doubts about the soundness of the building, which was not intended to be a permanent structure, it continued to be used during the 1940s and 1950s. Tenants included the Model Railroad Museum, the San Diego Hall of Champions, and the San Diego Men's Art Club, forerunner of the San Diego Art Institute. In 1978, the building was condemned as unsafe and was temporarily evacuated, but the San Diego Art Institute moved back in after sprinklers were installed. So sprinklers were all that was necessary to reclassify this temporary building as safe. That is, it was only a matter of fire safety, not that the building was structurally unsafe. Politician George W. Marston wrote in 1922, you may prove what you will in facts and figures about the shaky old buildings. The only answer is, they shall not pass. Somehow, without knowing how to explain it, we are instinctively, subconsciously, incurably in love with them and will not give them up. It's the grand emotion and is founded, I think, on something real and vital. Let's summarize. Most of the temporary buildings in San Diego were supposed to be torn down and only meant to last for a short time, 30 years at most, but officially stood well into the 1990s. Then they got demolished and rebuilt as perfect copies in a permanent way. The organizers behind the expo always wanted to get rid of the buildings, but there was public resistance so enormous that many got renovated or rebuilt instead. In principle, permanent buildings are also affected by the need for regular renovation. For example, many cathedrals, such as Cologne Cathedral or Freiburg Cathedral in Germany, have been in a permanent state of renovation during their entire official existence. This is what the San Diego Pavilion looked like in the 70s, which was officially one of these permanent buildings. It had to be restored at a cost of about half a million dollars.
Expensive renovations are therefore not a reliable indication that a building was not originally constructed in a permanent form. Liège Internationale, World's Fair in Liège, Belgium, 1905. About the exposition, we can read the following interesting remark. Note, it is sometimes difficult to tell whether certain nations actually participated in a significant way. Newspaper reports, as well as the official documents or secondary sources, may indicate participation when actual participation did not occur or occurred minimally. Some nations had unofficial exhibits. It is unknown whether some above that are listed as official actually were. Take the above as a guide, not gospel. Various sources differ on who exhibited. The documentation of the Expos seems to have been a bit poor and contradictory in general. The only thing that can be said with absolute certainty is that of all the exhibition buildings in Liège, only the Palace of Fine Arts has been preserved and can still be admired in all its splendor today. Note that the other buildings in the exhibition shown here are little different from the Palace of Fine Arts. Most of the buildings appear to have been similarly massive in construction and probably would not have needed to be demolished. Great Industrial Exposition of Berlin, Germany, 1896 the Berlin Trade Exhibition of 1896 was the first exhibition to feature baby incubators. Incubators displaying premature babies were to be found at most expos from then on. What does this say about a society that displays preemies in such a cold and inhumane way? Were these incubators as much a part of an agenda as the orphan trains? In any case, uprooting children seems to be the best way to traumatize a society and completely disconnect it from its history. In particular, the former colonies, Australia, New Zealand, and America, were largely populated by orphans and criminals. For example, the first European settlers of Australia in 1787 are said to have been 700 convicts, and within the next 80 years, more than 160,000 prisoners were shipped to Australia to repopulate the country. A report by the UK's House of Commons Child Migrants Trust also states that an estimated 150,000 children were affected by forced relocations to the colonies over a period of 350 years, and that this process did not stop until the late 1960s. Whether all of these children were orphans or had living parents cannot be conclusively determined. However, what is known about the shipped children of the 20th century is that many did indeed come from poor, broken homes and their parents were still alive, although they were usually told otherwise.
But back to the trade exhibition. The Berlin area of 900,000 square miles was even larger than that of previous World's Fairs in America and elsewhere. The old Berlin area alone, which was supposedly a detailed replica of late medieval Berlin, consisted of 120 elaborately designed buildings. Among them were two city gates, the Zwinger, the market square, the town hall, the hospital, and a theater of breathtaking size. Photos of this area show massive and seemingly ancient stone buildings. Surprisingly, not a single photo exists of the Alt-Berlin Theater, which was demolished in 1897, neither of the construction, the finished building, nor the demolition. And at that time, it was supposed to have been the largest theater in Berlin. It was closed already during the course of the Berlin Trade Exhibition, and the demolition process began shortly after. A website dedicated to the architect Bernhard Siering informs us, Facts and details about this theater have unfortunately been hard to find, and we are pinning our hopes on further searches for old postcards or private photographs. In addition, there was a ban on publication and advertising, and the fact that the actual visitors to the fair probably did not have the time and leisure for a theater performance lasting several hours. After all, it was a trade exhibition. All this had a serious effect on the number of visitors and led to bankruptcy and ultimately to the demolition of the 200,000 Mark building, which was not winterproof, while the fair was still in progress. The ban on advertising is also mysterious. Why was the theater not allowed to advertise? Well, perhaps they wanted the theater to disappear as quickly as possible and without much fuss. Even the marketplace in Alt-Berlin, supposedly built of temporary materials, hardly looks a cheap new construction. The roof tiles look weathered, the stones massive and ancient. On the walls of the houses, we also see signs of age. Spandaustrasse in Alt-Berlin shows the same picture. Weathered, massive buildings. Nothing in this photo indicates that even a single building here was temporary. The filthy house walls alone speak volumes. Here it seems that a historic part of the city, like all the buildings of the 1896 Trade and Industrial Exhibition, has simply been razed to the ground and all records of its existence destroyed. Incidentally, Germany did not play a major role at the World Exhibitions. It was not until the foundation of the German Empire in 1871 that the German contribution to the exhibition of commercial, industrial, technical, and artistic products assumed more significant proportions. It can be assumed that before 1871, there was no central authority through which the cabal could have exerted influence on the Germans. In the wake of the founding of the Reich, however, a spectacular process of high industrialization occurred. Within a few decades, the empire made up for and even surpassed the deficits in comparison to other European countries. When the empire also overtook Britain, it was decided by the cabal, for whatever reason, to neutralize Germany geopolitically and catapult it into cultural irrelevance with two world wars. In the period between 1871 and 1914, however, Germany was transformed for the first time from an agricultural to an industrial country, 
with drastic consequences for the reality of life for many Germans. Due to the massive immigration into the empire between 1871 and 1914, from 40 to over 60 million inhabitants, it can be assumed that misery and poverty were rampant in the German cultural area before the founding of the empire, and that in the course of industrialization, many people could once again hope for prosperity. But what role did the newly founded empire play in the destruction of the German spirit? Did people still live in the consciousness of the Old Reich, as the Holy Roman Empire of German Nations was also called, which, according to official historiography, lasted until 1806? The last Prussian king, Wilhelm II, put it this way, It is our duty to educate the youth so that they become young Germans and not young Greeks or Romans. Thus, national identity formation and patriotic education became the flagship of Prussian education. How is it that Germans came to think of themselves as Romans? Was German identity first thrust upon us to separate us from our Nordic Germanic brothers and sisters outside the imperial borders? At the very least, this focus on national identity formation and the architecture that exists in Germany suggests that there was once a unified culture in Europe, and that our past was rooted in an advanced culture that is commonly described as Greco-Roman, but had nothing at all to do with Rome or Greece, because Rome was everywhere as part of a Nordic culture. Industrial and Commercial Exhibition, Dusseldorf, Germany, 1902. The trade exhibition in Dusseldorf followed on from the Rhenish-Westphalian Industry and Trade Exhibition of 1880. The latter was held in a huge, impressive neoclassical hall in the Zoological Garden. The pictures that have survived show a rather massive-looking building, but we learn... The building material was mostly wood, the roofs were made of reddish-brown roofing felt, and draperies, i.e. decoratively arranged materials, were made of carefully stenciled burlap. More than 100 supposedly temporary halls were completely demolished after the exhibition. We cannot verify any of this at the current time. Detailed graphics of the exhibition do not even seem to exist. A different location was chosen for the Dusseldorf Trade Exhibition in 1902, which would naturally be the obvious choice if the aim was to destroy as much architecture as possible. Thus it has been handed down that more than 150 exhibition buildings were erected on the banks of the Rhine, including the main building known as the Kunstpalast. This domed building alone contained 14 huge halls. The official version says, the mostly temporary exhibition architectures combined new industrial and craft production methods with the forms of Art Nouveau, sometimes also with the forms of neo-baroque or eclectic mixtures of styles. Although at the time there seemed to be no desire to spend either time or money on permanent buildings, the operators did show astonishing endurance when it came to the subsequent relocation of some of the exhibition halls. One hall was transported to Bochum, 
one to Cologne, and a third even to Mexico City and rebuilt. However, the largest halls of the 1902 exhibition were designed to stand the test of time. The exhibition building of the State Railroad, for example, was similarly impressive as the Art Palace, and the Art Palace itself was never demolished, only built over and integrated, which raises some questions given the ugliness of the modern building. The exhibition hall of the Bochum Association, which now stands as the Century Hall in Bochum, also mysteriously looks completely different nowadays. Saxon Thuringian Industrial and Commercial Exhibition, Leipzig, Germany, 1897. It is also known from the Leipzig exhibition that all the buildings were demolished afterwards. In the end, only an empty area remained, today part of the Clara Zetkin Park, formerly called König Albert Park. The fact that two hills were built from the rubble of the demolished buildings, which still adorn the park today, seems a little macabre. The Leipzig exhibition, like the Berlin exhibition, included a replica of the old town. And of course, as with other expos, these were supposed to have been only cheap cardboard buildings. But in an article of that time, we find a hint that the reality must have looked a bit more complicated. So we can read in the newspaper The Bower from 1897. We first prefer the excursion to the village situated at Forest and River, whose houses partly consist of real buildings, which were demolished at their location and were rebuilt here, and partly copies as lifelike replicas. It is astonishing to see how this aspect is completely ignored in the generally discoverable sources. Some of the buildings were thus, according to the narrative of the time, presumably genuine old buildings from German cities, but were demolished and rebuilt for the exhibition. Whether this process can be said to have been an economically rational decision remains to be seen. But which house owner actually agreed to make his houses available for demolition, only to stand idly by and watch the final demolition after the end of the exhibition? Even the description of the main building does not exactly give the reader the impression of a cheap building. When we enter the exhibition park through the main gate, flanked by two high obelisks, the area of which covers 400,000 square meters, we are met by a surprisingly beautiful sight. In front of us stretches an extremely charming landscape. In the midst of magnificent plantings lies a sparkling pond animated by swans and framed by delicate statues. And in the background, the impressive main building is visible, greeting us like a white castle. This is our destination. We walk along the wide Linden Avenue leading around the water, which runs through magnificent gardens in which kiosks and temples are picturesquely scattered and reach the mighty main building via the Flood Canal Bridge, which is decorated with statues representing Saxony and Thuringia, industry and trade. The building itself, in Renaissance style, occupies an area of more than 40,000 square meters, including the Machine Hall, and is adorned with a number of small towers. 
In front of the entrance are the pillared figures of the cities of Dresden, Leipzig, and Chemnitz. Even the electricity stations, which were supposedly built in Dusseldorf as well as in Leipzig, especially for the expos, must have been so temporary that they suddenly collapsed only a few days after the end of the exhibitions. In any case, they were completely removed as quickly as possible. The same fate befell the electric circular track of the expo. And it's almost surprising that it was usable at all. Well, maybe the tracks and wagons made of temporary materials were unusable already a few days after the expo and started to magically disintegrate. What if the power plants of the Expos functioned completely differently than we are told today? Are we possibly dealing with a completely different form of energy supply that was still in use at various exhibitions? In any case, the speed at which the supposed power stations were removed is suspicious. This also befell other buildings and power plants that aren't associated with the Expos. For example, the tower of the Dresden District Heating Power Station, which in itself was an architectural feast for the eyes, and whose facade was made of Elbe sandstone in order, as it was said, to pick up on the harmony of the cityscape. Why it was allowed to remain standing for only 34 years after its final completion in 1901 will probably never be conclusively explained. Officially, it was no longer needed but it seems strange why it was not even considered worth preserving in order to preserve the cityscape as a whole, after no effort had originally been spared in terms of appearance. Just compare today's industrial facilities with this extraordinary beauty. By the way, the demolition of the rest of the building did not take place until 1978, so it seems that the removal of the tower was particularly urgent. Exposition Universelle, Paris, France, 1889. Most of the buildings of the Paris Expo of 1889 were located on military or municipal land and were demolished shortly after the end of the exhibition. Only the Eiffel Tower remained, although 11 years later another exhibition was held and it seems completely nonsensical to rebuild everything again for this. The second exhibition in 1900 was also strongly criticized as it had not been as impressive as its predecessor. This may have been primarily due to the fact that most of the old structures had already been razed to the ground and the new buildings looked primitive in comparison. It was of great importance for the cabal to gain control of Paris. The French Revolution or the Age of Revolutions followed destruction of the old world they concluded the events that today's historians refer to as the General Crisis. The General Crisis is a term that describes the period of widespread conflict that destabilized Europe from the early 17th century to the early 18th century. These two terms, General Crisis, Age of Revolutions, disguise the destruction of the old world as unrelated events. With the European revolutions began the age of modern pseudo-democratic states. 
The influence of the secret lodges, especially Freemasonry, on the French Revolution is well known. Propaganda was used to incite the masses against the king, and the ancient regime was deposed. It is against this background that the 1889 exhibition should be viewed, as it marks the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution. A special feature of the Paris exhibitions is the Eiffel Tower. Unlike many other buildings, in this case the construction is documented in a comprehensible way. This steel building was therefore indeed built anew for the exposition, another indication of which is that the architectural style of the tower differs considerably from the ancient Greco-Roman style buildings. The Eiffel Tower, while impressive in size, is not an aesthetic structure, such as the Palais du Trocadero. Does the Eiffel Tower, then, represent the Cabal's achieved control over this part of the Old World? Looking at famous pictures of the exhibition, the Eiffel Tower looks like a gigantic juggernaut, sterile and functional, towering over the old sublime architecture, symbolizing the triumph of modernity over the old world. How long do you generally sleep each night, Mr. Fusi? Eight hours? 441,504,000 seconds of time you just throw away. The Robber Barons of the Gilded Age Everywhere in the Western world there were the Robber Barons, industrialists who were directly or indirectly controlled by secret societies and who could accumulate enormous amounts of money as long as they did what was asked of them. This period has different names. In the United States, it is known as the Gilded Age, and in Germany as the Gründerzeit, from about the 1860s to the early 1900s. However, this Golden Age came to an abrupt end with the First World War. In any case, industrialists seem to have been the stewards of the new technologies, and most of today's major entrepreneurs were shaped in one way or another by the transfer of technology from the world's fairs. Emil Rantenau, for example, founded AEG in response to the technical achievements he observed at the world's fairs in Paris, Vienna, and Philadelphia. Some interesting aspects emerge from the analysis of the industrial families. They were, and still are, obsessed with art and other artifacts from the pre-industrial era. The early industrialists literally hoarded entire houses full of sculptures and paintings, as if it was just a matter of making as many remnants of the old world disappear as possible. It remains to be said that thousands of works of art and sculptures were presented at the world exhibitions, which have since largely disappeared. They lived in the most impressive neoclassical buildings, basically palaces, that existed at the time. Mysteriously, however, they had many of these buildings demolished very quickly. Perhaps a little too quickly considering the construction costs? One of the most impressive examples is certainly the Astor House in Manhattan. Among the largest in the entire city, it was supposedly completed in 1896 and demolished already in 1926. 
And is this photo of the alleged construction of the Villa Hugel of the German industrialist family Krupp really a new building or rather a renovation project? In any case, it is very likely that all these buildings were already standing and were simply taken by the new power elite. Possibly, then, the term robber barons meant precisely people who had literally stolen their property. Purpose of the World Exhibitions If it is true that many of the buildings at the World's Fairs already existed and were only renovated, then the destruction of these buildings is one of the largest cover-ups in recent history. Also, this would be further proof that pretty much all countries were already controlled by the cabal 100 years ago, and modern politics was intended from the beginning as a means to infiltrate and control cultures. The systematic destruction of knowledge and the theft of cultural goods and property by the church continued seamlessly with the advent of more contemporary nation-states. With the help of a central monetary system imposed on us, state-legitimized robbery is still the main cause of the transfer of wealth and possessions into the hands of a few. The misappropriation of majestic old-world building sites by the new post-colonial power elite happened at the same time as other events that all seemed to be connected. Thus, from the mid-19th century onwards, not only were world's fairs held in oversized and far too expensive buildings that were completely inappropriate for them, but at the same time the first psychiatric hospitals, insane asylums, were being built. Just like the world exhibitions, these psychiatric hospitals were architecturally unsuitable for the defined purpose. Architecture always reflects the consciousness of the builders and is defined by its purpose. However, we would expect industrialists to build simply and economically, to use steel and concrete, and by no means to demolish their buildings immediately, but to try to generate income from land and buildings for as long as possible. But we see just the opposite. The buildings at the world's fairs are detailed, ornate, aesthetic, and far too large and expensive for their purpose. They represent something completely different from the world we know, they represent ancient Rome, the classical ideals of the beautiful, the true, the good, the pursuit of the divine and perfection. The world's fairs connect two completely opposite eras or cultures that should have no points of contact at all. The world of the industrial robber barons and an old world that we can no longer remember but in which the economic principles we know played no great role. Of course, some of the buildings at the fairgrounds were indeed cheaply constructed and temporary in nature. For example, in this photo of the Louisiana Purchase Expo, you can clearly see that some of the plaster is peeling off and the interior, consisting of wood, is exposed. Another example of a temporary structure is the Porte Monumentale at the World's Fair in Paris. This monumental gate has been called tasteless and considered by some critics to be the ugliest of all the Paris exhibits. Years after the St. Louis Expo, one of the architects, 
Lewis Sullivan wrote in The Autobiography of an Idea. Meanwhile, the virus of the World's Fair, after a period of incubation in the architectural profession and in the population at large, especially the influential, began to show unmistakable signs of the nature of the contagion. There came a violent outbreak of the classic and the Renaissance in the American East, which slowly spread westward, contaminating all that it touched, both at its source and outward. The selling campaign of the bogus antique was remarkably well-managed through skillful publicity and propaganda by those who were first to see its commercial possibilities. The market was ripe, made so through the ebitude of the populace, big businessmen, and eminent educators alike. By the time the market had been saturated, all sense of reality was gone. In its place had come deep-seated illusions, hallucinations, the blanketing of the brain. Thus, architecture died in the land of the free and the home of the brave. Sullivan aptly describes here the poisoned rebirth of pseudo-classicism in the 20th century, the attempt to imitate the old structures without having understood the architectural principles. We always see two fundamentally different types of architecture in the photos of the expos. On the one hand, the massive classicist buildings with uniform and harmonious proportions of the golden ratio. They do not differ in the slightest from the real European Renaissance buildings because in fact they come from the same era. On the other hand, we see cheap-looking, actually temporary buildings made of plaster and other cheap materials, which do not originate from any known historical epoch and which were obviously built with the intention of tearing them down again as quickly as possible. The following photo shows very well how little time there was to renovate the areas back then. The buildings in the background have been renovated and repainted, while the two small houses in the foreground are still very yellowed and show their true age. Many temporary structures were erected around the old buildings for the expos, e.g. cheap pavilions, walls made of plaster and imitations of famous buildings. But after the expos, not only the temporary, but also the old buildings were demolished. Did the World's Fairs perhaps serve, among other things, as an instrument to give people a national identity after the unified culture had collapsed? The separation into nations seems artificial. The Slavs, for example, seem just like the Germans of Nordic origin and thus part of the same people. The term Slav, originated from the pejorative term Sklavi, was put into the world by the Vatican and stood for the pagan tribes of Europe who did not want to submit to the monotheistic power apparatuses. After the successful infiltration of the German cultural area, only the pagan Eastern Europeans were referred to as Slavs. In fact, most of the nations we know today were not founded until after 1850. Modern Egypt, for example, only in 1953, after the British conquest. Illyria, the home of the Illyrians, became the Balkans after annexation by France. Free Tartary became Uzbekistan. Persia became Iran in 1935, the Ottoman Empire became Turkey in 1923, and so on. 
The old words have a meaning. Our whole past resonates in them. When these words are spoken, that alone establishes a real connection with the past. By losing these words, we also lose that connection, and with it, the connection to our ancestors. Meanwhile, our world is divided into various soulless administrative units, controlled by a small secret elite. It was at the expos that people first came into contact with the new technologies. Telephones, railways, electric light, i.e. the light bulb, wireless communications, incubators, cars, photography, films. In addition, the supposed realities of life in the colonies were also frequently depicted. Africa, South America, etc. The creation of the patent system played an important role in building the monopolies, because only with patents it was possible to own knowledge and thus technologies, and thus control people. The foundation of the world we live in today was laid then during the time of the world expositions. The technological knowledge of the old world was selected. One part of the knowledge was kept secret, the other part was presented to the public. One of the most important criteria in this decision-making process was whether a technology could be controlled by a central authority. Any form of free energy must have been very dangerous to the forces that controlled the robber barons of the industrial age from the shadows. It is important to understand that these industrialists had not earned their wealth themselves. They were born into elite families and chosen to play a predetermined role. Hierarchy and Power only since the dawn of the 20th century has the attitude prevailed that one must take something from others in order to be able to have something oneself. Competition took the place of cooperation. These two opposing worldviews, cooperation and competition, can be visualized as follows, with a circle and a pyramid. The competition system is pyramidally organized. It involves an authoritarian chain of command that requires absolute obedience. At the level of the intelligence services, this system is represented by the need-to-know principle. Competitive thinking can only arise in a hierarchically organized society. In this society, energy flows from the masses at the base upward to the top of the pyramid where it may even be absorbed or consumed by non-earthly entities. At the top seems to be what is named in mythological, religious, and esoteric lore as Satan, Antichrist, Evil, or the Demiurge. At the base of the pyramid are people who feel powerless, basically slaves. Success in this system is defined by making it to the top. This always implies that on the way up, you oppress other people. Take something away from them. The further up you go, the more powerful you feel. Energy is represented or symbolized by money in this system. The money system was built in such a way that, in the sense of the pyramidal system, it gradually directs people's life energy to the top of the pyramid. We can assume that this is also where the true reason for the existence of the fiat money system is hidden. To rob people of their life energy, 
Wer bist du? Mein Name ist Momo. We already encounter the connection between parasitic paranormal beings, the monetary system and the oppression of humanity in the work Momo by the author Michael Ende. Men in gray called time thieves steal people's time. These interdimensional parasites convince the adults that they can save time by depositing it in a time savings bank. The adults believe the promises of the men in gray. In reality, The more they save, the less time they have. The time they save is lost to them. Life gradually becomes sterile and bleak. Buildings become standardized and all look the same, just like clothes. No one lives in the present anymore. No one has time for each other. And life becomes hectic. Only the children recognize the cold, vicious nature of the gray men as they are still in touch with their own aliveness. The adults fall prey to the idea of having to save time, and so their lives become increasingly bleak and gray. But the gray men are gradually able to cast their spell over the children as well. Only Momo can resist the cold, psychopathic power of the gray men. Outside of space and time, she defeats the men in gray frees the stolen time, and gives people back their vitality and the love in their hearts. It's amazing, by the way, that in the novel, Momo lives in an old, decaying Roman amphitheater surrounded by dreary, modern, new buildings. Momo represents the connection to the old world. She represents life. When Momo defeats the men in gray, the last one says with relief, This is good. Michael Enda realized that evil has no existence of its own. It is only a shadow, a black hole, the absence of something. Evil can only exist as long as there are people running away from themselves and their own aliveness. The parasites are our creation. The destruction of the parasites is the triumph of man over his own contradictory nature and his dark side. Power and powerlessness are in truth only two sides of the same coin. And also, in karmic terms, everything has its price. Every experience of power is always based on a corresponding experience of powerlessness. Even if these experiences are separated on a temporal level, a good metaphor for the pyramidal system is a black hole that absorbs all light, consumes everything, and releases nothing. It is a one-way street. That's why secret societies exist in the first place. In a pyramidal system, the relevant decisions have to be made in the shadows, and no one is allowed to know the people making the decisions. The system is like a hydra, and we can only see some of their heads. Evil is always absorbing, consuming, calculating, inward-looking. It closes itself to life, to exchange, and to truth. Possibly in the old world, on the other hand, people were integrated into a cycle. Everything was cyclical and in balance. People knew that they had nothing to lose by giving to others. In these communities, people lived for each other. On an energetic level, energy flowed freely between them without flowing outward. 
In these small, healthy communities, there were no authoritarian hierarchies, no chains of command, no parasitic forces. Authorities evolved naturally, and people with natural authority were keen not to abuse their power, as this would have resulted in expulsion from the communities. The system, built on cooperation, includes multiple rings running concentrically outward. In the center is the heart, the wisest, most intelligent, most capable people in the community. Unlike the pyramidal system, these people do not hide, for they need not fear transparency. Even architecture reflected this concentric system. For example, in the round city of Baghdad, or Atlantis, which was supposedly built in rings. From the center or heart of the city, life moves outward in rings. The city wall separates the city from the outside world, creating a self-contained living system. Goodness is outwardly radiant, giving, without ulterior motive and without expecting anything in return. It is its own cause, its own source, and has enormous radiance. So, we're going to pull out some of the elements of this story. Now, we expect this to be a hero's journey, and it, indeed it is in a very obvious and overt way. Let's go over basic story architecture first. So, when you first start writing and filmmaking, you have a linear perspective in that sense. Pretty soon you realize that both the beginning and the ending are the same, which is why we demonstrate story structure via a loop. These are seven basic plots. The Hero's Journey Julius Evola, Revolt Against the Modern World With the First World War, the Russian Revolution, and the Second World War, it can finally be said that the decisive events are rushing towards the end times. In 1914, the imperial court still represented a remnant of feudal and aristocratic Europe in the Western world. The World War of 1914-1918, like few other wars in history, shows all the signs of a clash, not between states and nations, but between ideologies of different castes. This resulted directly and intentionally in the destruction of Imperial Germany and Catholic Austria, and indirectly in the collapse of the Tsarist Empire and the Communist Revolution. Furthermore, this resulted in such a chaotic and contradictory political-economic situation in Europe that all the preconditions for a new world conflict were in place. In his 1922 poem, The Wasteland, the poet T.S. Eliot describes the atmosphere of Western society after World War I. He writes about a collective loss of meaning in human existence. The First World War, and what is sold to us as the Spanish flu, catapulted Europe into godless modernity, completing the development that had been initiated earlier with the world's fairs and the Industrial Revolution. Man, cut off from his roots, became a cog in a great wheel. Life was replaced with mere functioning. There isn't a more hopeless poem than Eliot's. Eliot processed the fate of a lost generation, 
of people who were only running away from themselves. Civilization was riddled with materialism, hedonism, and atheism. Behind this, for him, was the godlessness of modernity, the nihilism that opened up like a yawning abyss in front of humanity. This modern nihilism and materialism shows itself ideologically above all in the theory of evolution and heliocentrism. Traditional man lived in a world that represented just the opposite. Instead of a slow evolution from animal to human, with no higher meaning in a cold and hostile universe, we were placed by a creator in a perfect world, where we are the center of reality and where everything we experience and do has deep meaning. Turning away from this view rooted in tradition and dissolving the old order is the most important goal of the occult secret societies. According to the traditional view, the material world contains only effects. Nothing takes place in this world that did not first originate in a world invisible to us. The ancient world elevated man to God endeavored to free him from the material passions, to transcend him with free elevation in thought as well as in action. The Semitic world not only deprived the human creature of the divine, but finally reduced God to a human form. Julius Evola, Revolt Against the Modern World. The 1925 novel The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald is another example of post-war literature that reflects this loss of meaning. Post-war society in The Great Gatsby is characterized by materialism, consumerism, and competitiveness. Behind this is a sense of isolation. People had been cut off from their natural communities by the upheavals of modernity. And without these communities, they lost not only their connection to their past, but also to their fellow human beings. When a human being lives only for himself, life is only worth something if you have more than others. In contrast to this destructive processing of what had happened was J.R.R. Tolkien, who was also active at the time of the First World War. He grasped the complete dimension of the problem. He could only process this in myths and pictures because it is not consciously accessible to us. While Eliot and Fitzgerald are now known only to a small academic elite, Tolkien created a resonance among the masses that still seems unbroken. Unlike Eliot, he grasped the big picture and also recognized that good triumphs in the end. Unlike the alienated academics of the 20th century, he restored hope and brought back meaning to humanity. Mythologist and author Joseph Campbell describes in his epic work The Hero with a Thousand Faces that there is the same basic structure in the most famous stories and myths of mankind. The Universal Hero's Journey. In the Jungian sense, it is one of the most important archetypes. It is the monomyth, the essence of all myths and stories. You enter the forest in the darkest place where there is no path. Where there is a way or path, it is someone else's path. Then you're not on your own path. The hero's journey is about the courage to seek the deep, the image of creative rebirth, 
the eternal cycle of change within us, the uncanny discovery that the seeker is himself the mystery he seeks to know. The hero's journey is a symbol that, in the original sense of the word, connects two ideas far apart, the spiritual quest of the elders with the modern search for identity, which is always the same one, shape-shifting yet wonderfully constant story. Who's the hero? You and me. Anyone who sets out on the quest. The hero's journey essentially consists of three sections, separation, initiation, and return. This myth is encoded, for example, in the biblical story of the prodigal son. The son leaves his father, separation, experiences initiation, he seeks happiness in the material external world, squanders money and becomes impoverished, then he repents of his sins and finds God, and return, reunion with family. The hero's journey is a journey out of a morally corrupt, stuck life into one's own darkness, a confrontation with one's own shadows. This confrontation leads to an initiation and eventual integration of what has been experienced. In this way, the hero brings a piece of divinity and vitality into the material, in the biblical sense satanic, world. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers, against principalities, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Why do you still do it? Why are you still out here? Well, it goes back to the destiny thing. You know, I made a bargain with it, you know, a long time ago, and I'm holding up my hand. What was your bargain? To get where? Should I ask who you made the bargain with? <laughs> with, 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 you know, with the chief, uh, chief commander. On this earth? <laughs> and on this earth and in, uh, and in a world we can't see. These dark rulers work directly through people, as Bob Dylan has made unmistakably clear. Those who have power, fame, and influence in this world in these times pay a high price a price that goes beyond this world. In the beginning, there is always a decision. In terms of our history, humanity is going through this very heroic journey. We are collectively in the second part, the initiation process, the point where the night is darkest, the dark night of the soul, the point where we are confronted with darkness, with evil, at the end of this process, there is a renewal, a reconnection with one's own history, destiny, and being, and ultimately with God. According to Zoroastrianism, the purpose of our existence on Earth is to enable the dark part of human nature to live out its darkness. This enables humanity to overcome its own darkness. In this way, Entering the karmic cycles of the earth can be understood as the conscious decision to break away from evil. In Zoroastrianism, the world was created only to finally eradicate evil, Ahriman, comparable to Satan in the Bible. According to this, God set a trap for his adversary by creating the earth. Evil is now trapped in earthly existence and inevitably exposed to the process of becoming conscious. 
and is thereby finally destroyed at the end of the earthly ages. In order to support this process, it is necessary that enough of us make a conscious decision for truth and against the lies of this world. For every shadow, no matter how deep, is threatened by morning light. Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Alpha Male Buddhist, and that's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast so it's motivational and inspirational i also have promotional t-shirts if you go to my website alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com you can see the promotional t-shirts there reach out to me also if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast just reach out and see if i can get that done i've been getting some really Great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.